We are uh, continuing to journey through the minor prophet, the prophet of Amos, who's known uh, very well in these chapters for his cookies. Well, he's known for a little bit more. As we uh, continue to uh, journey through these chapters, we hear the heart of God, uh, a God who is crying out to his, his people. We hear, the, we hear the heartbeat of a broken-hearted father who is suffering as he sees his own children walk away from him, walk away from God. And for anybody who thinks that God is just some kind of heartless, evil, one who enjoys punishment, all they have to do is begin to read through the minor prophets and begin to see the, the heart of God. God doesn't become the nice God in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, he's a real meanie. His character is unchanging. His ways are tried and true. His nature never changes. This is a God who is pleading with his people, and he's pleading with them by speaking to them. It's a speaking God. It's the only God. It's the God who speaks because he's alive and he's real. Idols don't talk. Carved pieces of wood and stone. Melted metal doesn't speak. The gods of money and sex don't talk. We have uh, made all of these different kinds of gods, and we've gotten tired of those kind of gods, so we have made man his own God. And even man in his speaking is a secondary speaking. We don't speak unless we have life, and we don't have life unless it's been given to us. We are not self-existing. But there is a God who exists and who speaks from himself, and he's not dependent upon anybody else. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1, thus says the Lord. He's a speaking God. By the way, if a Somebody comes and says uh, uh, a prophetic has a prophetic gift for today. It's a dangerous thing to simply say, "Thus says the Lord." If somebody believes that God is speaking to them, it's better for that person to say, "I believe the Lord is speaking to me. I think this is the Lord laying something on my heart." But there is no office of prophet. No one can get up in this church or in any church and begin to say, "This is exactly what God." is speaking. This is new revelation for all of us. Let's write it down. It's going to be part of the canon. But Amos, because he is a, a prophet who is speaking words of Scripture, is able to say with clarity and with boldness, this is God speaking. This is a God who is pleading. This is a God who is hurting. This is a God who is longing for his people to Come back to him. Verse 3, says the Lord. Verse 4, thus says the Lord. Verse 6 of chapter 2, thus says the Lord. Verse 11 of chapter 2, declares the Lord. Verse 16, declares the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, hear this word that the Lord has spoken. Verse 9 of chapter 3 declares the Lord. Verse 11, thus says the Lord God. Verse 12, thus says the Lord. Verse 13 declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. 
Verse 15 of chapter 3 declares the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 3 declares the Lord. Verse 5 declares the Lord God. Verse 6 declares the Lord. Verse 8 declares the Lord. Verse 9 declares the Lord. Verse 10 declares the Lord. Verse 11 declares the Lord. This is a message from God. And he wants us to, he wants us to get that. He wants us to understand that there is a God. And this God is able to speak into our situation. He's able to speak into our life. And he's a God who cares. There are some people who say that God really doesn't have feelings. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't hurt. He doesn't actually ache. He's not, he's not one who is sensitive to what is going on. He's just this God up in heaven kind of removed from everything. And we would kind of wonder, if that is what God is like, how can, he, how can he sympathize with us? How can he really know what we're going through? We get this kind of teaching. Even the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God is without body, true, without parts or passions. That is, he has no passions. So he's not sensitive? Is he, does he hurt for us? When you read through this, there's a, there's a clear sense that there is, um, there's a hurt for his people. There's a longing for his people. That God actually has affections and he's calling to them. He's, he's not one who's just saying, listen, I don't have any feelings. I don't have any affections. I don't have any passions. I'm just in heaven. I'm just uh, this unfeeling God. That's not the, the text that we get from the scripture. Erwin Lutzer, in his excellent book called Ten Lies About God, writes this. He says, I certainly agree that it would be dishonoring to say that God is like a child who loses his temper, like a frustrated lover who grieves over the companion who jilted him, or worse, like a lover who wishes his dearest to love him but is incapable of bringing this about. Even more disrespectful would be the notion that God is a victim of his emotions. And like us, can't do much about his changeable moods or feelings. A God who suffers because he cannot help it. Or a God who suffers because of circumstances beyond his control would be a pathetic creature unworthy of our adoration. But then he says this, That said, bear in mind that God chose to suffer. So when we talk about the suffering of God and his pleading with his people, we're not talking about somebody who has no control over his passions. But we are saying that it's not just one person of the Trinity, but that it's all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who do have passions because they choose to, because there is a voluntary choice to sense and to feel what we are going through. And to know our pain. So when God is pleading with us, he's not pleading with us as somebody who is indifferent. But we can look to him and say, God, you know exactly what I'm going through. And it's not just the son who can feel what I'm going through. But it's the father feels the pain. The pain of a father calling back his children who he so deeply loves. And it's not just the father who has these affections and these passions. That's exactly what the scripture tells us. It's not just the son, but it's also the Holy Spirit who deeply cares about us. And we can go to him and say, 
God, you know what I'm going through. God, you know exactly what it is that I'm sensing and what I'm feeling. And when we finally truly feel the heartbeat of God, we even begin to weep over the glory of God. We begin when we come to a place of repentance. We actually weep over the Lord. You ever weep over the Lord? You ever get to the place in your life where you're, you're, you're saying to yourself, Lord, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize my sin caused you this pain. Lord, I'm so sorry that it wasn't that you were just this indifferent God up in heaven just giving me commands. But every time I jilted you, every time you called out to me and I didn't listen, you were speaking to me over and over again, and Lord, I wasn't hearing it. Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, you're a, you're a speaking God, and you were pleading with me over and over again. And part of repentance is when we get to the place where we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I need your forgiveness because it's against you and you only have I sinned. Lord, I've gone against you. I have broken your law, but I haven't only broken your law. I have broken your heart. And God, I'm coming to you and I am asking you to forgive me of not being conscious of the fact that you were you were there the whole time. You were speaking to me and you were calling to me in the midst of all this. And I, I didn't hear. But when we are brought to a place of repentance, we finally get to the place where we weep over the glory of the Lord. John chapter 11, Jesus wept over his dear friend Lazarus. And in the original, he was deeply weeping. And this is how we weep over our Lord. You say, oh Lord, how? This is, this is the brokenness of true repentance. We have heard his law. We have heard his requirements. We have heard his heart. And we are brought to the place in our life where we say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for going against you. You love me so much. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness in the midst of all of these different years and all of the different events in my life, you loved me right through it. You called a, a spade a spade. You didn't shy away from talking about my sin. Lord, help me to hear your voice clearly. And in this text in Amos chapter 2, we see the utter incapacitation of sin, what sin does to us. The destructive nature of sin, how it incapacitates us. It causes us to not be able to act or to act righteously. Now, notice verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, he's going here to describe Israel's sin. He has talked about the southern kingdom. We remember that Amos is from the southern kingdom and he is preaching to the northern kingdom primarily. For three sins of Israel and for four, this is uh, the sins of ascendancy. There's more sins than just three or four. He says, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Here are these social sins that we're talking about. He said they sell the righteous out. Instead of treating the righteous with 
dignity and with honor, they, they don't treat them well. And here he is saying you, instead of treating the righteous well, you, you love evil. You go after evil, you go after wickedness, and you're so wicked that you come to the place where you're willing to sell the righteous for silver and the needy, you mistreat the needy. You mistreat the poor. You're willing to sell them out for a pair of sandals, a pair of Nikes. You sell somebody out quickly. And this isn't just the matter of selling someone into slavery. It's simply the way that they would treat people, and in particular here, the way that they would treat the righteous. Very amazing in a society that gets further and further away from God, how that society will treat people who are actually following after the Lord. More persecution comes, more tragedy, more people being mistreated, the righteous being mocked, the righteous being sold out. Verse 7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn away the, the way of the afflicted. Instead of treating them right, you'll treat them poorly in court. You will take advantage of the most poor among you in the courts. You will wring money from their hands. Then he says this about sexual sin that is so pervasive. In Israel, it says in verse 7, A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. Saying so you have a father and you have a son, and they are sexually intimate with the same, the same girl. This is how far Israel had gotten away from the law of God, that they're both using the same woman. It's possible that this was a temple prostitute. But this is the this is the darkness of sin. This is where sin takes us. It plunges into depths that we never thought that we could possibly go. And here he is saying, this father, you like this girl, you pay to have sex with this prostitute, and a day later your own son goes into that same prostitute. God is saying, these are the wicked things that I'm talking about. These, these are the sins that I am requiring judgment for you. They lay themselves down beside every altar. Verse 8, this, this again has to do with sexual sin, laying themselves down on garments taking in a pledge. If somebody was to take a pledge of a, of a garment... If that person who had the, the garment went back and asked for it back at night, because many people would sleep on their garments at night, that was all that they would have. According to the Old Testament law, they were to be given back their garment for the night so that they could have something warm, something to sleep on. But these people who were taking these garments as a pledge, instead of giving them back, they were actually taking them having sex on them and sleeping on them and mistreating them. It says, so you take these garments in a pledge, and in the way of the house of God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So you take the wine, you go into people's houses, you take their wine, you over people, you take their money, 
So you're taking the poor people's money, you're going in and you're drinking, and you're having this great party on the backs of people who are poor. And this is this decadent society that God is describing. This society that is moving further and further away from God. Verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness. And I raised up for you sons who were prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? He's saying, I raised up from your own midst. I raised up godly people. I raised up Nazarites who took this Nazarite vow. I raised up prophets who would speak the word of God faithfully among you, but yet you rejected them. You would not hear them. In fact, that's what it says in verse 12. But you made the Nazarites to drink wine. Now, the Nazarite vow has nothing to do with Nazareth. It has nothing to do with the town of Nazareth or being a Nazarene. But a person who was going to take a Nazarite vow, according to Numbers chapter 6, was somebody who was going to consecrate themselves for a period of time and say, I'm going to consecrate myself to the Lord for a holy purpose. Later on, this consecration would go for a minimum of 30 days. So somebody could do it for 30 days, they could do it for six months. There were people who did it for a lifetime, who consecrated themselves. And these were men and women, and they would not cut their hair. They would, not, uh, they would not drink wine. They would not eat grapes. And so they would come before the Lord, and they would say, Lord, I want to consecrate myself. I want to set myself apart for this holy purpose. Lord, I'm going to come after you with my whole heart. This was a holy vow that certain people would take, again, having nothing to do with being a Nazarene, but simply any Israelite who wanted to take this vow. And yet, the people of Israel would tempt them. They'd say, okay, you've taken a vow that you're not going to drink wine. Here's a little wine. Why don't you have it? Why don't you drink just a little bit? Why don't you just take a little bit? Why don't you mess with your hair just a little bit? They would try to throw people off course, people who were righteous. And perhaps you have seen this happen in your own life, where somebody is trying to live a, a life of righteousness, and somebody comes along and says, well, you say you're not going to drink, but why don't you just drink a little bit? Or why don't you come party with us just for this, for this one night? And all of a sudden, a person is being tempted and uh, they're being led astray, and people are coming along saying, I know you can you can still be dedicated to God, and you can still go after him, and all that's, that's good and well. We're, we're totally with you. But why don't you just compromise just a little bit in your life? You're kind of like a stick in, a, in the mud. You're, you're, you're kind of one of those holy rollers, one of those self-righteous, holier-than-thou type people. Why don't you have a little bit of fun? God is condemning those who would come against the We're trying to throw them off of their vow. And not only that, they would tell the prophets, you shall not prophesy. They'd say, we don't want to hear the word of the Lord spoken. 
It's too much for us. Would you stop? Would you stop opening the Bible? Would you stop preaching the word of God? We don't want to hear about sin. We don't want to hear about judgment. We don't want to hear about any of these things. So Nazarites, lighten up a little bit. And prophets, please stop preaching. Please stop bringing us the word of the Lord. Reminds us of, you go over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 32. Romans 1 verse 32. Though they, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So this is talking about all of the wicked things, all of the sins that people are practicing. Not only do they do them, they not only do them, it says here, but they give approval to those who practice them. So they're not only sinning, but they're trying to bring others along in their sin. So God is saying, you've done all of these different sins, Israel. You have profaned the altar of God. You have gone after false gods. You've become sexually immoral. You're trying to get the righteous off the path of righteousness. You're trying to get those who have taken vows off of their vows. And oh, by the way, self-salvation is impossible. Because what people try to do is they get into this bad situation in their life and they say, well, if I make this decision and I try to do this and I try to put this scheme into my life, somehow I will get out of the mud. I will get out of the darkness. And God is saying, no, no, when my judgment comes, you're not going to be able to save yourself. When the Assyrians come later in 722, there's nothing that you can do. Notice verse 13. He says, behold, I will press you down in your place. Now, it's interesting. In some translations, it says that God is the one who is pressed down, and that seems to be the translation that we would want to take here. What God is saying is, I am so weighed down. Back to the passions and the sensitivity of God. God is saying, you have weighed me down like a cart that can barely take it. The axles are about to break. The cart, the bottom of the cart is scraping the bottom and is hitting the dirt. It's hitting the ground. And God is saying, I'm so weighed down with your sins. I am, I am touching the ground. I am pressed down under the weight of the sins that you are committing. That's what he's saying. Judgment is coming. As a cart full of sheaves presses down. Now here's what he says. You're not going to be able to do anything. Flight shall perish from the swift. He's saying you're not going to be able to run away from the judgment that he is going to bring, even if you're fast. And the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. It doesn't matter how many tanks you have or how many ships you have or what political scheme you put in place. You continue to sin against God. You continue to put him underneath the weight of all of these crushing sins. You can come up with any scheme that you want. And this is exactly where we're at in this nation. What we are saying to God is this. God, we want to sin. God, we want to do what we want to do. We want to continue to go in the path that we are, we are continuing in and have been on for a long time. But we also want to be religious. We don't want to give up religion. We're going to be religious. And we're also going to do whatever we want. 
And God, we somehow are going to figure out a way where we're going to save ourselves from your judgment. God, we're going to come along this path of where if we get the right ideas in place, the right philosophies in place, we can just continue to sin generation after generation after generation, and it's not going to make any difference. And God comes along and he says, that's not the way it works. His answer here is not a political scheme. His answer to social sins is not socialism. His answer is to say, there is nothing you can do if you continue on this path. You're not going to be able to outrun me. You're not going to be able to outgun me. You're not going to be able to get away from me. You're not going to be strong enough, swift enough, smart enough. Verse 15, he who handles the bow shall not stand. And he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. I'm strong, stout of heart. We're going to make it. We're going to just keep pressing through. A nation that turns away from God, a nation that says we're going to keep sinning, and we're also going to be religious, but we're really not going to change. God says, I am pressed down. I am weighted down underneath all of this sin. And this cannot go on forever. Sound familiar? If we don't learn from the nations of the past, if we think that we can continue to approve of all of these different sins in our country, in our communities, and in our own families, if we think that we can continue to live unholy lives that spring from unholy, unchanged, unregenerated hearts, we will be judged. Let me conclude by saying this. The problem with these people, listen, is they weren't saved. They didn't know God. They did all the stuff. They didn't know the Lord. And the Lord, like this compassionate father, He's coming and he's saying, I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to you. Declares the Lord. Says the Lord. Declares the Lord. Declares the Lord. Declares the Lord. Over and over and over and over again. And he says, you will not get away with this. You cannot continue like this and just think things are going to just go smoothly on forever. They're not. And what we currently see in our nation and in the lives of our communities and in our families is a constant drip, drip, drip of weakening. We're getting weak, folks. We're getting weak. God says this. Can you hear what I'm saying? Are you listening to this book, his solutions for the problem? Or are you going to continue to delude yourself thinking that you're going to be able to figure it out on your own through your own strength, through your own might, through your own ability, through your own military, through your own whatever, your own education. And he calls us to humble ourselves. Judgment is coming, but here's how much God feels for our sins. Here's how much he is grieved by our sins. Because of his justice and his holiness and his righteousness, he could have said, I'm going to just judge you, and then that's the end. But what he did was, he said, I will take the judgment for you. This is how much God cares. And so God sent his only son into the world to experience the justice of God 
on our behalf as a substitute in our place because he loves us. That is the infinite love of God. If you want to see the love of God, all you have to think about is the suffering that our Lord Jesus Christ went through in 33 and a half years as he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And he did it so that we might hear God. That's why Jesus would say over and over again, he would say this, he would say, for him who has ears to hear, for him who has ears to hear, are you listening, not just with these ears, but are you listening with the ears of your heart? This is why the Bible talks in terms of open the eyes. It's not talking about open physical eyes or open our clogged ears because it's not talking about just our physical ears. It's giving us a physical representation of our spiritual ears. Are we really listening? Are we listening?